0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God don't never change. Welcome to The Podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 309. 309. So, Let's uh, talk about. Here's an odd thing to talk about. Well, maybe not so odd. It's becoming more and more of a thing. I want to talk about generational angst. Generational angst, and I've just noticed an eruption of of this uh, kind of thing in the last five years or so, uh, where it it wasn't really this way, at least not open, uh, before ten years or twenty years ago. I'm a boomer. I was born in 1953 and what i've noticed is generational issues get dragged into debates much more quickly than they ever did before so if i say something you know this is what this is what it appears to me this here's an observation that appears to me and i get the response or the equivalent of the response okay boomer my reaction is where did that come from i didn't say that because i was born in 1953 I said that because I looked it up, you know. I I looked it up in the dictionary, or I looked it up online, or I looked it up in the Bible. That's why I said that. And someone says, "Yeah," and that's a boomer thing to. Say. <laughs> someone says, "Yeah," that's a boomer thing to say. That's a boomer response. Boomers always say they say things because they looked it up, and never because they were a boomer. And let me budget for the fact that the people saying that have a possible point. I want to distinguish a couple of things. So let's say that we've got all the generations in front of us, all the ones we're currently dealing with, the boomers and the Gen Xers and Gen Y and the millennials and Zoomers, let's say they're all there in front of us, like a stack of pancakes. In order to understand what's going on, you have to take your knife and you have to cut through the whole stack of pancakes, cut the whole stack in two, top to bottom. And then on the left side of the pancakes, you've got what I would call the problems that every generation of human being, the kind of problem that all of us have had, no matter what, okay? No matter who you are, no no matter what country you're in, no matter what generation, what culture you're in, you have to deal with the fact that somebody has to explain to grandma that she can't keep her car keys anymore, right? That is going to be a conversation that is going to be difficult and is going to be a conversation that you have to have whether or not grandma was born in 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980. That's a perennial issue. What do you do with an elderly person who still believes they're competent, but they're not competent anymore? Whether it's driving or running the family business or publishing something or, you know, the, and this—that's a constant—and that is simply a function of what age everybody is. Okay, young people have certain capacities, middle-aged people have certain capacities, and elderly people have certain capacities. And the Bible talks to us uh, sometimes about that. There are certain principles that apply there, but then there is the other side, the right side of the pancake stack that you cut into. And that is the fact that the people now entering their uh, elder years are boomers. And boomers were people who who are not just people who were born after the Second World War. It's not just a chronological thing anymore, meaning how old they are. It is also what kind of a world they were born into and what kind of world they grew up in. And what kind of a world was it when they came of age? What shaped them? So, uh, someone who is uh, born, if I was born in 53, I became, I turned 20 years old in 1973. But turning 70 years old in 1973 is a very different proposition than someone turning 20 in 2023 we're coming of age I came of age and a young person today is coming of age in a very different setting I came of age in a stable America where everything was right side up now there was there was sin there were difficulties there were problems and challenges but it wasn't the clown world that it is now it wasn't clown world so someone today coming of age in clown world is going to be affected by that and such that when he, when he turns 70, he is going to be a different kind of 70 than I am being. So, that's the right side of the pancake. The left side of the pancake is every 70-year-old is alike in some respects. Every 50-year-old is alike in some respects. Every 20-year-old is alike in some respects. But on the other side, it makes a difference whether you came of age as a boomer, as a Gen Xer, as a millennial, and so forth. So, what do we do? Uh, What is our uh, what is our responsibility? Well, there are a number of things, but one of the things I would point to—I'll just mention one—I would say that it's incumbent upon every Christian of whatever generation they're in to be an avid Bible reader. Join the Bible reading challenge. Jump in. Start reading the Scriptures over and over and over. Why? Well, because one of the things this will do is, particularly if you are in a church which is fostering and and encouraging this sort of thing, and the teenagers are reading their Bibles, and the young marrieds are reading their Bibles, and the elderly people are reading their Bibles, what this will do is it gives everybody a common vocabulary. It gives everybody a common vocabulary, a common room where everybody can come and everybody's welcome, and everybody can speak to one another in terms that everybody understands because everybody is inhabiting this Bible world. If you don't do that, every generation is going to develop its own jargon, its own uh, you know, its own slang, its own modes of expression. And if one generation tries to communicate with another generation by adopting their argo, by adopting their jargon, it's going to come across in, in a "hello, fellow kids" sort of way. It's going to be clunky and inept. It's not going to be it's not going to be good. Not going to be healthy. So there's my two cents. Generational angst. If there's sin involved, stop it. And one of the best ways to stop it is to proceed with humility and humbly come to the scriptures and ask God to help you understand the weaknesses of your age and your generation, and understand the strengths of your age and of your generation. Always will be God. So, Continuing on with uh, episode 309 of the podcast, Hamartiology is the study of sin. What does the New Testament say about sins, and how are they categorized? The word today is kakalageo, kakalageo, k-a-k-o-l-o-g-e-o, kakalageo, which means to curse or to speak evil of. The word lageo is the verb for speak. Uh, logeo means to speak, and kako is evil, to speak evil of. Kako logeo is to speak evil of. Our our use shows up twice uh, in parallel passages out of the synoptics, uh, that being Matthew and Mark. For God Here's the first, Matthew. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth, there it is, he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Matthew 15.4. And then again, for Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Mark 7, 10. Now it's really interesting that Jesus quotes a passage. He quotes honor your father and mother from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, but he he also adjoins to it this other passage from the Old Testament. And this is a passage, the second one he quotes is one that many modern Christians are embarrassed by the one who curses father or mother should be executed? Not only so, but he charges those who set this command aside as preferring the traditions of men over the goodness of God's law. He said, uh, the Bible says, God says, honor your father and mother. God says, the one who curses father or mother should die the death. But you say, whatever I've dedicated the temple, whatever is Corban, I don't have to give to my parents. I don't have to honor father and mother. And Jesus says, "Thus you set aside the word of God for the sake of your traditions." So, if Jesus is not embarrassed by an Old Testament passage, we should not be embarrassed by it. Uh, Now, this is not to say that there aren't uh, modifications of the application of such a law in the transition between the older covenant and the new covenant, and the coming of Christ, and all that. Yeah, we don't execute kids who curse father and mother today. We don't do that, but we shouldn't. Not do it because we're embarrassed by it. If someone said, someone said, "Hey, there was this Israelite kid who cursed his mom and he was executed in the year 750 BC," our response should be, "Well, did he get a fair trial?" Did... <laughs> we shouldn't be, we shouldn't apologize. Ever, don't ever apologize for anything in the Bible. So another time, Jesus was chiding his disciples for being too concerned about the Lord's turf boundaries. All right, so, but Jesus said, "Forbid him not, for there's no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me." Um, Mark nine thirty nine. So a man's not going to sin against me by speaking evil of me if he's been doing miracles in Jesus' name. It's going to be hard for him to turn around and speak evil that way. And then on another occasion, the apostle Paul moved his base of ministry. The Apostle Paul moved his base of ministry uh, because of how people were indulging in this sin against him. Uh, This is Acts 19.9. Acts 19.9. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil, there we go, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So, Paul rented a, a lecture hall, and ministered there in Ephesus for a couple of, couple of years. During this time, all of Asia Minor, all, with modern Turkey, all of Asia Minor heard the uh, word of the Lord, and it was God bringing good out of evil. These people spoke evil of the Apostle Paul, he pulled up his tent pegs and moved down the street, and a great deal of good was done. God never Continuing on with the podcast, episode 309, we come to our book review. The book review is uh, a book by Theodore Beza, and the book is called The Rights of Magistrates. The Rights of Magistrates, which you can find uh, online. I read a, an electronic e- ebook version of it. It's not a long book, uh, but it is a, a, a significant book, and it's part of what we should call Protestant resistance theory. Now, Theodore Beza was a, a brilliant man. He was a great before his conversion. He was a great and acclaimed poet. He was converted, and he wound up in Geneva. And he was John Calvin's successor in um, in Geneva, and was a great theologian. Now, Beza wrote this book, The Rights of Magistrates and you might consider uh, if if you wanted to go back to the first few centuries of of it and you wanted to read you wanted to read up on protestant resistance theory the books you would want to read would be uh, this one the rights of magistrates a little short book uh, then Vindicii contra Tyranus, uh, a vindication against tyrants which is the work of an anonymous huguenot writer and then, in the following century, uh, 17th century, Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Now, and there's there are there are others who are in this uh, position, uh, George Buchanan and Scotland. Uh, the, it's not like these three are the only three, but th- these three are the ones I would start with. Lex Rex by Rutherford, uh, the Rights of Magistrates by Beza, and Vindicii contra Tyranus by uh, Junius Brutus, Brutus, which is a, a pseudonym. Now. Here, here's how the problem sort of gradually manifested itself. When we talk about resisting the uh, established authorities, we, in our individualistic era, almost always think of the authorities, uh, you know, in the upper story, and then all the individual citizens down below. The modern era, where the the Reformation is right at the beginning of the modern era, but there's still a great deal of um, inertia from the late medieval period. And part of the political structure in, in Europe at that time was far more feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L, feudal, than it is today. Today, you look at a map of Europe and you see uh, nation-state borders. Here's Germany, here's France, and so on. And when you look at that, you say, okay, those are countries. Well, in in this period, you had feudal lords, and the feudal lords, a baron, a guy with a castle, uh, would swear an oath of fealty to the king. And in the feudal system, the vassal owed allegiance to the king, and the king owed protection to the vassal. That was the that was the arrangement. The king would protect the vassal, and the vassal owed allegiance to the king. Now. When we think of persecution breaking out, we think either of the first-century Christians, where Nero is attacking the Christian church and he's chasing individual Christians, or something like that happening in the modern era, where the bad guys are chasing, chasing individual believers around. Well, in 16th century France, the problem was, if the king declared a persecution against the Protestants. A number of the Protestants were nobles. They were the men with castles. But the men with castles didn't just have castles. They also had armies. That's how the system worked. So, when the king was going to be going to war with the neighboring king, he would summon up his vassals who would show up together with their army. And so, what do you do you know, what do you do if you're Lord so-and-so, Duke so-and-so, and a persecution breaks out against all the Huguenots, and you're a Huguenot knight or a baron or some you know uh, someone with a castle, and you've got an army? What do you do with your army? This was a new one, right? And so what Beza is doing in this book is sort of outlining what he thinks the gradation of resistance can be. And he develops, Calvin starts this in book four of the Institutes, where Calvin appeals to the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And that means that, in our terms, when the president declares a tyrannical edict, it is all right for the Christian to resist under the umbrella protection of a governor or a mayor or a sheriff. Basically, you, you don't get to you don't get to rebel in your own name on your own authority as private citizen Joe Schmo. That view has to wait until George Buchanan up in Scotland, right? You know, so John Knox. Uh, also, incidentally, John Knox is a a good example of Protestant resistance theory as well. So uh, when 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 this happens, uh, so what Beza is doing is making the case from Scripture and from The constitutional arrangements of Europe's tribes and nations. He's arguing that resisting a king who's gone out of his mind or resisting a tyrant is a legitimate thing for a lesser magistrate to do, and it's a legitimate thing for a Christian to follow the lesser magistrate in resisting the king. But Beza is very strong on a private citizen doesn't get to do that, while other advocates of Protestant resistance theory go farther than he does.